I want my boys to understand a real man needs to be first and foremost respectful of every single other human being out there. Irrelevant to their point of view, their gender, their sexual orientation, that is something they have to give instantaneous is respect. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. I'm in studio today with Vaughan Lucas. Vaughan is a father of two boys and a South African voiceover artist and actor, perhaps best known for his roles in Sieven de Laan and Getrout Met Rugby. I am Ricardo de Silva, and this is Expanding Horizons. Vaughan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Ricardo. So it's great to have you on Expanding Horizons. You've been an actor now for how long? It's been a total of 11 years professionally. And how did that start? How did you get your big break, as they say? Well, actually, that was a very interesting story there. I'm not a professionally trained actor. I started out on a reality show called Class Act. And with Class Act, I was not intending to become an actor whatsoever. I had just recently been retrenched. And my sister-in-law, who was living with us at the time, decided that I should do this and dared me to go ahead and try to be an actor. It was a very interesting experience. Managed to make it all the way to the top eight out of plus minus 400,000 people. So it kind of kicks you off in the right direction, realizing that you can do the job. And where did it kick you off to? Where was the first destination after Class Act? Funnily enough, the very first paid acting job was not even an acting job. It was a paid modeling job. (laughs) I had the joy of posing for a bank for their motor finance department on the front of an Audi TT at the time. That made it into a few major publications, a couple billboards, but it was really the advent of my first paid gig. And then in terms of acting? Well, thereafter, a couple adverts. I did a Toyota advert. A bunch of guys are sitting and watching rugby, and the one friend comes running in late and uh, scratching his chest, and they all try to figure out what he's done to himself, and he told them he waxed. And The reason he waxed his chest was because he had a giant eagle tattooed on his chest. And that was my first television gig. Thereafter, a few other adverts here and there. In terms of television itself, really, my break began with Isidingo. Started out there, did about three months as a character there. He was um, Carter Blake, that's the name, yes. And Carter was a geologist. And he was also a love interest to the character played by Linda Sokulu. Thereafter, did one almost pretty fairly soon on Generations as well. After that, there's been a couple You've really been on some of the major soapies. Almost from the beginning. Isidingo Generations, I have not managed Scandal. Uh, Binnelanders, I did do a very small part. I sat in a coffee Uh shop and ordered coffee, and that was that. But then there was Hatharabid Ragbeam, which was really the break into the Afrikaans market. And then Seven Alan is the most recent one, with Isibaya being one of them as well, a series called Ambitions, which did fairly well. And then The Imposter, which did even better than people expected it to. But those were the, really the big local ones. So is it a passion for acting now? Or was it sort of the lucky break after Class Act that then became the job? 
very often you hear people say, when you have the good fortune, the luck, the blessing to be able to do what you enjoy and have a passion for and be paid for it, then that's wonderful. It never was a job. And I don't foresee it ever being just a job. For me, it is very much my career. And I differentiate between career and a job in that a career is something you want to go to and do in the morning. The minute you know you've got to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and have a 16-hour day where you're standing on your feet for 15 of those hours, you're willing to do it, then it's not a job. Mm. Then it's a career choice. Then it is a path. And you're also a father. I am, yes. Two beautiful boys. And uh, patience key there? Beyond a shadow of a doubt. One of the things that myself and my wife have always been blessed with is that they're just good human beings, both of them. Absolutely phenomenal boys. But they're still boys, Hmm. 10 and 12, and (laughs) very often you'll find that they will quietly get up on a Saturday morning and make sure mommy and daddy are still asleep and then go off and do something. And next minute you'll hear something falling. And you'll hear the whispered conversation between the two of them trying to decide how they're going to deal with this situation. So you kind of take a deep breath and just, you know, let it go sometimes. Thankfully, they don't tax my patience too much. How do you think your career has influenced them as boys, whether the fame or the perceived fame Mm. or whether simply just being away from home, so many different aspects of the job? Yeah, there's there's, this. I mean, when I first went into class act, it was I was in the house for very possible full two months. That did have me worried because they were both very young at that point. Doing local jobs, which is always 90% of the time is filled up in Johannesburg, which of course we're based in, that was never a worry for me in terms of being away from them. The jobs where I have to fly away, go down to Cape Town or to Durban or wherever it is that I get taken to, the amount of time we spend away from each other is never that significant. Very often, the biggest issue that I've always been very nervous about explaining to them is romantic scenes. Those are, (laughs) they're difficult. They're actually never very comfortable. In truth, there are very few actors who actually enjoy having to perform a romantic scene, especially when what is referred to as stage nudity needs to occur. But very often where I've known that there was a romantic scene coming up, I've always warned the boys about it. When they were younger, it was kind of difficult to explain that daddy's kissing another lady with mommy's permission, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been uh, an interesting one. But as they've gotten older, they've understood it as a job. It's a part of the job. They watch enough film and television to see it happen. And they're also very well aware that the two actors, in fact, might even not like each other at all. But as part of the scene and as part of what is needed to be brought to the scene, a romantic relationship is either needed to be intended or needs to be shown. Thankfully, I did do a film, an indie project, which they redid and dropped all of the scenes that had me in it. We'll change the entire script, actually. But there are moments in my career where I've had to simulate nudity and simulate sex. And it's always been a very nervous point. Like I said, we've always explained it to them that daddy actually has mommy's nod and okay, that this is what's going to happen. But that also comes down to communication, not just with them, but also with my wife. Mm. Speaking to her and saying, this is the scene that's coming up. This is what they're going to want from me. And very often I'll say, my words will be, are you okay with it? And the one day she explained to me, because I was always very amused by the fact that she just kind of waved it off and went, yeah, of course. And I said, but why are you so comfortable with it? And for her, it was 
easy to explain. She just looked at me and said, well, it's because it's not you. It's a character you're playing. It's an entire different personality. It's an entire human being that has nothing to do with you. Yes, there may be similar life experiences. We all touch on each other's life experiences in some way, shape, or form, but it's not you. And that has helped settle those kinds of questions with them as well. I mean, they, they, they know to speak to me. It's one of the things I've always try to instill in them is absolute, complete and utter honest communication with me because very often I need to explain my job to them. I may have scenes where I'll say to them, I don't want you to watch this and they'll ask why and I'll say, well, because dad kills someone with his hands. And they kind of go, oh, okay, we get it, you know. So as they've gotten older, that explanation has actually gotten shorter. Um, Sometimes I'll just say, I don't want you to watch it because it's not appropriate and they'll go, okay, fine, we get it. But that comes from trust. Trusting that what I'm saying to them is the truth. Trusting that what I'm saying to them is for their benefit, rather. Yeah, so it's, it's, it has its moments. They have had to deal very often with people in malls, especially with being on Sea of Andalan, coming up and I'll be walking with them and you know, you get some woman wanting to put their arm around their father's waist and take a picture and you can see they kind of have a moment of, uh, and then they let it go. But it comes from continuous exposure. They've been exposed to it for 11 years now. Mm. It's part of the job, mm. you know. It can damage the relationship. And I've always worried that it would. But without realizing it, I've managed to circumvent all of that by just speaking to them about it. Mm. Explaining to them that, okay, boys, we're going into an area where daddy is very well known. So there are going to be people that want to take pictures. There are going to be packs of women that decide they want to take pictures with me because that has always been my worry with I think good reason because there are a ton of actors out there male and female who fall into the illusion are drawn in by the fawning that happens not to say that it is every single time completely and utterly unwanted because you kind of enjoy it to a certain extent. I'll gladly admit that. There's a part of me that enjoys people recognizing me and going, oh, hey, I know you. Can I have your photograph? Can I take a picture with you? Those are enjoyable moments because they're a part of the job. Mm. The problem with that is falling into the idea, and it comes back to self-worth, falling into the idea that I am because they see me as. The truth of it is, is that that is a side effect, complete and utter side effect, and that's something I've explained to my boys as well, continuously. <laughs> And for your wife, you've mentioned some of the things mm. in terms of mm. romantic scenes, but mm. what is the impact of being an actor on your relationship day in, day out? Aside from the financial difficulties, um, she views it as a job. She is a teacher at an art school, so she sees kids, young teenagers, preparing for dramatic roles. She understands the difficulties of it. She knows that there will be days where I will get home from work, say hello, and disappear to the study. And she won't see me until the next morning when she opens her eyes as I'm saying goodbye when I walk out the door again, because that's the preparation that's involved. The amusing part for me is always her reaction. She she uses Bono from U2's wife as an example. Not many people know who Bono's wife is, because there's barely anything about her out there. The reason for that is that whenever the photographs need to be taken, whenever the cameras come up, she kind of drifts off to the side. And <laughs> Colleen is exactly the same. Mm. 
she would rather take the picture for people. Very often she's had fans say, oh no, please stand next to us, stand next to us, come stand with your husband, we want to take a picture with both of you. And she just grabs the people's phones out their hands and goes, no, no, I'll take the picture. And takes the picture of them and myself and she will not appear in pictures. To the point where, as far as my social media is concerned, I'm very blatant about the fact that I am married, but you will pretty much never see a photograph of her on it. Once or twice, special occasions where I just feel it is worthwhile posting, moments where I feel are special enough to be public, because not everything needs to be public, even the special moments. And that's the thing, those special moments where I take photographs aren't necessarily for everyone else's consumption. Mm. She is protected by herself and protected by me, and that has added a lot to her acceptance of my career. Firstly, she's a very understanding human being. Being exposed to young actors who go through the personality changes that can sometimes occur from long-term roles, from sleepless nights and hearing someone complain continuously for hours on end that their throat is sore, but they have to go to work and they need to be pampered and mollycoddled. Yes, I get like that. <laughs> but she's always been strong about it. She's always been aware of what her role in my career is, which is she's there as my pillar of strength. She's my support. She's the person I will stand in front of and throw scripts on the ground and complain about and rant and vent with mm. because that is who I need her to be. Mm. It's almost a chameleon-like quality where she knows who she needs to be when I need it to be. Um, and it's, it's helped drive my career forward. I mean, uh, for me, I always maintain when it comes to particularly married actors, you need two good people in your life. One is your partner and one is a good agent. One will help you get the jobs and the other one will make sure you keep the jobs. And that's what she's done for me. She's helped me through some very difficult scenes and moments and journeys of the characters' lives that have touched me in ways that I didn't expect to. Things that have caused me sleepless nights. Hmm. things that have stressed me out to no end, it's a partnership. There is no leaning on one partner because we lean on each other. Hmm. You know, she's helped me walk the path that I've chosen to walk that has, I've been fortunate enough to have choose me and come out of it relatively unscathed. We seem to have a crisis in terms of how we understand being a man today, masculinity, perhaps even the role of a man in society. Can you speak a little to that? How have you instilled in your boys the kind of masculinity that you want them to take out into the world? Um, well, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. For me, I want my boys to understand and I hope I've managed to achieve it to a certain extent. I mean, it is an ongoing life lesson as far as I'm concerned that a real man needs to be first and foremost respectful of every single other human being out there, irrelevant of their point of view, irrelevant of their gender, irrelevant of their sexual orientation. That is something they have to give instantaneous is respect. Yes, respect is earned, absolutely. But you cannot earn someone else's respect unless you're willing to give it either. In terms of their interactions with the opposite sex. There is a massive train where men have been portrayed, rightfully so to a certain extent, as the antagonists in very violent situations, especially when you're referring to gender-based violence. I've always tried to show my boys that respecting a woman doesn't make you weak. 
The respect I've shown their mother every step of the way, apologizing when I am in error, standing up for my beliefs when I'm not in error, but doing so without resorting to banging your fist on the table, raising your voice, those are things that need to be taught. Boys in general and men are feeling emasculated because every time you turn around, you'll see slogans such as the men are trash slogan. Um, there is the Me Too movement. Now, those are very important. Any man, however, that is, for example, to use the men, men are trash uh, slogan and all of that movement, any man that starts feeling intensely maligned by that slogan needs to take a moment and look at themselves. Why are you feeling that way? Do I feel that there are some men out there who are trash? Absolutely. Does it mean every single one of us are? No. One of the difficult parts in the world we are living in is equality, understanding gender equality. As far as I'm concerned, if someone else can do the job better than me, irrelevant of their gender, race, color, creed, it doesn't matter. If they can do the job better than me, then they can do the job better than me. Being involved in the household affairs, call it a house husband, call it a housewife, whatever you want to call it, that is work. That is a source of pride and should be a source of pride. And that's something I've tried to show my boys. That in the quiet times, because that is, of course, the problem with acting in general, not even South African acting, but film and television in general, when you're an actor, you have quiet seasons. In those moments where things are quiet, I very often had people walking past our backyard where our washing line hangs up, and the facial expression is one of intense confusion when they see me hanging up the washing. Because... Surely the wife should be doing that. Men don't do that. Do exactly. That. Men don't hang up washing. Well, what are you doing? There's something very strange going on there. Just because I'm a man, does that mean I should not hang up the washing? If I was a single man, I'd be doing it for myself anyway. So what's the point? My wife coming home late in the evening. If I can cook a meal, why not cook the meal? Those are things that um, I've tried to instill in my boys, that there is nothing wrong in doing those things. That does not make you less than. That does not emasculate you. What does emasculate you is your own thoughts, telling yourself that you are not worthwhile. You are not the person your partner needs you to be because you're not earning a six-figure salary. I don't know very many people that earn six-figure salaries, so let's be honest about it. It's something that I've definitely tried to push at them, that a man, first and foremost, is respectful. Thereafter, the man they choose to be stems from that. Honesty and integrity stems from respect. I once said to my eldest, it was a very flippant remark, and I uh, kind of regretted it afterwards. And I said to him, if there's one thing I want you to understand about honesty, never lie to your parents, never lie to your siblings, Never lie to your partner, your future partner. You can lie to the rest of the world, but don't lie to them because they will be the ones that will have your back. It's a little bit flippant, but at mm. the minute you start being honest with the people closest to you, you'll be honest to those further away as well. The minute you understand that your self-worth is not based on how other people perceive you, but how you perceive yourself in the mirror, how those closest to you perceive you, the rest of the world just falls in line. Self-worth is a lesson we learn. Mm. And I would imagine that the experience of being retrenched mm. and being out of work and then Class Act came along and helped the situation. But that experience of being retrenched, surely that may have played into your own sense today of what it means to value yourself despite oh. what you may or may not have. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I've been retrenched possibly three times, changed jobs numerous times as well. My self-worth when I was employed by corporate companies was very tied into money. The problem with that was that when the money's gone, what does that make you? Being retrenched just before Class Act, I was unemployed for approximately three months. It did beat me down intensely. Depression snuck up very quickly. Doing Class Act and understanding, going through acting lessons with the acting coaches involved in the show itself, put everything into a different light for me. Suddenly I realized that my self-worth, who I am, is not tied in to how much money I earn. Beyond that, the biggest problem, and I am extremely grateful for the simple fact that I came into acting later than a lot of other people. When I started out doing acting, getting involved in it, and the side effect that is fame, because it is a side effect of the job, it's not the be-all and end-all of the job. When the side effects started growing, I realized that it's very easy to get sucked into the illusion, and then you base your self-worth of that. When you spend any significant amount of time, which, interestingly enough, as far as South African audiences are concerned, I would say is possibly maybe a two months off screen, the minute you start hitting that point, your star dims, for lack of a better word. And very often it's easy to feel that without that fame, you are less than. So that was a lesson through the acting that I had to learn as well, but the quiet moments in between the quiet seasons where easily up to a year of literal unemployment would crop up, you suddenly realize that the most important person I can be is to be me. And it's, it's definitely taught me that I'm not tied to my salary. I'm not tied to my car. But if I do a good job, yes, someone will pat you on the back and go, well done, that was a great job. But more than that, I can go to bed knowing that I gave the best of myself. And that isn't just in terms of the actual job itself, but in your interactions with other human beings as well. You know, so the, the retrenchments definitely realigned my thinking, I would say. As you were speaking about this, I'm thinking about your most recent exit from the screen. Ah, yes. I was wondering when you were going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan Alexander, who is the character you play in Sieven de Lan, That's right. And left our screens towards the end of 2018, is accused of paedophilia and then disappears. Yes. Just to give a more complete picture there, many years ago in his uh, backstory, he is called to Cape Town Harbour by a patient because he's a psychiatrist who uh, is threatening to kill himself and being the good psychiatrist that he does, he uh, slips on his slippers and rushes out, dressing gown and all, and witnesses a murder at that time. The organised crime syndicate that commits this murder was actually doing it for his benefit, funnily enough. They tried to use him witnessing that as leverage. So all the evidence was planted to point towards him and to get him off, they told him that one day you'll need to do us a favor and we will make sure this slides. You'll never hear about this ever again. He agrees to save himself, his grandmother and his career. And years later decides, forget that, I'm disappearing up to Joburg. And he runs away up to Johannesburg to Hillside. That's where the Sierra Lan journey starts for Nathan Alexander. While he's there, he manages to fall in love and everything is 
peaches and cream and strawberries and rainbows and everything's happy until, of course, the syndicate rears its ugly head. He is then uh, told he needs to cut up a child for organs, which he refuses and manages to work along with the cops and a few friends and gets this person jailed, who is just a finger on the hand that is the syndicate. Nathan getting this guy locked up angers the syndicate further, and that's where the accusations of pedophilia come in. Unfortunately, they come at exactly the right time in terms of he starts showing interest in child psychology. And he decides to begin working at specializing in child psychology because he finds children fascinating. He loves the way they see the world. He enjoys spending time with them. Now, that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean the person's a bad person. Otherwise, we'd have no school teachers. Mm. School teachers enjoy spending time with children. That doesn't mean anything malicious behind it whatsoever. And unfortunately for him, his interests shown and his steps taken towards that path are lined up at the right time for the syndicate to just kind of dump this pedophilia charges on him. He does eventually get proven innocent, but by proving his innocence, he also accepts the syndicate's offer to work for them as their pet psychiatrist. Mm. That is basically his exit. Prior to that, however, prior to his exit, he does steal some medical supplies and very blatantly even turns his face towards the camera for the camera to see it's him and the speculation around that, I'm just going to leave right there. Aha. Uh-huh. We're on a cliffhanger then. There is a cliffhanger. Until there. you come back. <laughs> uh, if you come back. So to be able to access that emotion, I was just looking at your Twitter stream. Mm. And there's a Indy Khan is the Twitter handle at Indy mm. Khan. He says, you're probably the rawest and most vulnerable actor he's ever worked with. Mm-hmm. How do you access that emotion? One of the things that I've always been very aware of is that I'm very in touch with my emotions. But the truth of it is, is that every single one of us has some form of pain, some form of joy in our lives. For me, I always use visual memory tricks. I will think about what the emotion is that needs to be portrayed, and I will then attempt to find a memory that links to that emotion. Once I've latched onto that memory, I spend a good few hours going back and, for lack of a better word, re-latching onto that memory, finding it, bringing it up, letting it go, thinking about it, mulling over everything that happened before that moment and after that moment, and then letting it go and doing it over and over again until it's easier to access. Once I'm able to access the memory in my mind's eye, then accessing the emotion becomes second to none, because that emotion is there already, because it's attached to the memory. So you've got to continuously access all of those things. The other thing that I tend to do is I tend to watch people. It can come across as a little weird, this guy in the coffee shop sitting and staring at everybody, but it allows me to understand human behavior. The way people speak to each other, you may have a couple sitting in a corner and it looks like they're screaming and shouting at each other, or having a whispered argument, but in reality, that is just their love language. They're heated, they're passionate. So for me, those are some of the things that I do to access it. It's not always easy. Crying scenes, I don't quite cry on cue. When it comes to film and series, it's very easy to prepare for that. When it comes to soapies, it's a lot more difficult because very often you'll have scenes shot disjointed. So they're not chronological. So you don't have a moment mm. to build up towards that. Whereas if they, and it does occur, not to say it doesn't happen chronologically every now and again, but if it is a whole bunch of scenes chronologically, you can lead towards that emotion. 
tapping into it to use it while maintaining the character is where the trick comes in. That is very often a difficult part because the noise in your own head needs to be quieted. Enough for that character's words to come out of your mouth. Allowing the emotions in can be very painful. Anger is a painful emotion. Sadness is a painful emotion. I remember doing a film, I had the opportunity to do a lead role in a small little indie project, and my character's best friend died. And he finds the body with all the cops standing around the corner. And I did not intend to, but I broke down completely before I'd even gotten to where they wanted me to stop. Having the opportunity to physically prepare, understanding, and then just letting it happen in whatever natural way it needs to was intense. I mean, uh, I've experienced death. Family members have passed away. And yes, I've had similar outbursts in those moments. But that was the truth for that moment for that character. That emotion was what was needed. It's not very easy to find, ever. There are some amazing actors who can't access certain emotions for whatever reason. So for me, it, 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 it comes down to you've got to do the work. You've got to put the effort into it. You've got to understand human emotion as well. You've got to be able to accept that those emotions are there and that they're going to hurt. <laughs> Pulling them out, that being happy is one of the easiest emotions on the planet, you'd think, until you ask an actor to be happy, who's worrying about his wife who's lying at home dying of cancer, or who is worried about a parent, or who has just heard bad news. And then you're asking that actor, okay, fine, I understand you've just lost a family member, but I need you to be happy. Suddenly, happiness is painful. So you're a father, you're a husband, mm -hmm. you're an actor, mm -hmm. an adventure junkie. We haven't spoken much about I that. I am, I am. <laughs> and uh, also a person of deep faith. I am. I was born into a Lutheran family. My grandfather is a Lutheran priest who accepted his calling fairly late in life, literally left his wife and his two young kids and went off to varsity and went to seminary and studied and became ordained years later. But having that, having my father as an example, it doesn't mean that my faith is theirs. Faith is a very personal thing. I believe that every single one of us understands our faith as something completely different because it is a personal journey, it is a personal experience with God. Meeting Colleen many moons ago, many, many, many moons ago, <laughs> uh, but meeting her all those years ago and seeing the strength of her faith has at times bolstered my own because we all go through crisis, but it's also allowed me to, to understand my faith better becoming friends with Jesuit priests who... <laughs> heaven forbid. <laughs> heaven forbid. Well, I mean, the, the, all of those added to my faith because it gave me the opportunity to engage someone who was open to questioning, someone who was understanding of doctrine but was open to my questioning of it. I very often teased my wife about the differences between Lutheranism and Catholicism. Yeah, I think we should just clarify. So your wife's Catholic. My you wife is Catholic. I am Lutheran, yes. <laughs> but um, I very often teased her about the differences. But through that joking, through that jovial conversation, we have over the years, and of course, Vatican II says it brilliantly, as will church publications say it over and over and over again. There's more in common with the churches as we stand today than there ever was. Yes, 500 years ago, 
the Reformation occurred. 500 years down the line, however, we're sitting at a point where Catholics and Lutherans can have conversations about exactly the same thing with exactly the same understanding. One of the things that Colleen did not understand was that Lutherans also believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. The real presence. It yeah. is the real presence. It is not just a symbol as some of the other Protestant churches would choose to believe, as so many of them have made a part of their doctrines. The understanding of the the parts that bind rather than that that separate has strengthened my faith. It has Show me the beauty that can be found in a personal journey with God. When you say to those who have little or no faith, they always kind of frown at you, stare at you like you're a little bit insane. But I have a daily conversation with God. I pray, and it's not just in prayer that I speak to God. I will literally be driving on my own, and I will catch myself having a conversation. In those moments, it's a realization of, I know who I'm speaking to. I'm not just speaking to thin air because my mind is unhinged. I'm literally having a conversation with God. And in those moments, those are meditative moments for me. Having that personal journey with God, being through so much where I felt like my faith was slipping, through moments where I felt like God was not answering me. And then I sit down at the end of it all and I look back and I go, oh, right, I get it now. You were there the entire time. The Footprints poem, which everybody knows, as I've gotten older, has very much been something that I could attach myself to, because that's how I've seen it. Every moment that things have been dark, where I felt like I can't even pray, God has still been there. He has still gotten me through it, still got me to the end of the month where I'll look back and I'll go, hold on a second. I literally started the month with a zero bank balance, ended the month with a zero bank balance, Yet every single debt is paid. There is food in the house. How? Why? What just happened? Those small things have reminded me that it doesn't have to be water turning into wine. Mm. Yes, it may feel like you are falling apart, but it's okay. You will be okay. How does faith figure for the boys? And how do you instill that in the boys? They're very, oh, they are such spiritual children. Their questions regarding faith are moments of seeking clarity they have pride in their Christianity. Being in our home where religion is a very often spoken about topic and it's spoken about with them and in front of them, they both went through their first Holy Communion fairly late, but it comes from wanting them to understand what they were taking on. I explained to them that I put off my own confirmation for two years because I wanted to understand what I was choosing to do. Spending that time speaking to them, having them understand their faith, understand that for as long as they are in our home, we would like them to follow Christian teachings. I would like them, when they're older, to continue on a Christian path. And I have a funny feeling one of them is going to be a priest. I, I, Interesting. I, 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 Catholic I, or Lutheran? Well, that is the question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that they'll have to decide for themselves. <laughs> So, Vaughan, this series is called Expanding mm. Horizons. Mm. How do you see yourself as someone who expands horizons of hope? One of the things that I do attempt to do, and I do work a lot with a childcare organization for the Lutheran Church at Zoo Lake called uh, St. Peter's Childcare, 
They are an orphanage that deals with HIV-AIDS-related orphans. The pandemic has destroyed so many families. But more than that, there is the willful destruction that rips families apart. Alcoholism, drug addiction, violence. Things like that, they break people down. They break homes down. But by standing in front of a group of kids and explain to them that you are no different to they are. Yes, they see you on a, on television and they have this idea of who you are. Having the opportunity to explain to them that I came from a poor household. <laughs> I struggle financially. It may be dark right now, but the sun does rise again. So working with these kids for me has been, I, I'm blown away by so many of them. They give me hope. Vaughn, thank you so much. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I don't quite know how you put it all in. Father, actor, husband, adventure seeker, do-gooder, I, I don't know. But um, thank you. Thank you for your time and for being with us on Expanding Horizons. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Ricardo De Silva. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.